welcome to More Devotedly, a podcast for people who see the arts as a force for positive, progressive change. I'm Douglas Dietrich. This is Volume 4, Episode 3. Subhashini Ganesan, or Suba for short, is a dancer and choreographer, as well as the founder and executive director of New Expressive Works, a nonprofit organization and arts venue that seeks to make all cultural genres equally visible, to highlight the excellence of different artistic processes, and to maintain fully accessible practice and performance spaces. She is also Portland, Oregon's Creative Laureate since 2018. This role, like many other things here, is unique to Portland, as far as I've been able to tell. In it, she works in collaboration with city government and arts commissions to more effectively interface with Portland's diverse creative class, among other things. An early initiative she worked on was to conduct a survey of how Portland artists were using physical space in the city, with a particular focus on affordability. Later in her tenure, when pandemic-related closures took hold in Portland, Suba worked with arts leaders and philanthropists to raise over $170,000 for direct cash aid to artists. Suba is a humble, even bashful leader. She made it clear many times that she doesn't see herself as a hero, but I'll say that she's a hero of mine. Her leadership during this incredibly difficult time has been inspirational to me. And at times that I've been feeling paralyzed by the difficulty of the situation we're in, Suba has assembled coalitions that have taken concrete action to make it better. A big thank you to Suba and all the other arts leaders who have been working hard to get this community through this crisis, suffering as little damage as possible. I wanted to talk to her now because of the role she took in helping state, county, and city arts commissions make the distribution of $50 million of federal COVID aid money more equitable. As an organizer whose organization's future depends so much right now on accessing aid money, I can say that the extra work she and others from the Oregon Arts Commission and the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition to clarify the process for accessing this aid money was super helpful for me and I'm sure it was to many others as well. She and I met at Peninsula Park in Portland to have this conversation, and you'll hear sounds of folks riding by on bicycles, a chorus of crows, and even a well-timed car alarm. She talks about her role as Creative Laureate, the process of distributing this aid money from the Oregon State Legislature, and about the social justice movement taking place in Portland right now. Here's the episode. Welcome, Suba, to More Devotably. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Cool. Well, could you start by kind of introducing yourself? So I wear many hats, as you know. My primary foundational 
hat, I guess, is that I'm a dancer, a choreographer, and an artistic director. My foundation is in an art form, dance form called Bharatanatyam, which is a South Indian classical dance form. It's from the state of Tamil Nadu, and it's considered to be 2,500 years old. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it has evolved, right? I always say that what I'm dancing right now is not a cultural representation of a, an ancient past. Hmm. It's it's a evolution of, of the form as any form evolves. Sure. So that's really my foundational identity, if you will. Sure. I also run New Expressive Works. I founded it in 2012. Yeah. And uh, the mission of New Expressive Works really is to support, celebrate, and provide as much visibility as possible for independent performing artists in our city. It has grown to region and country and sometimes international artists, but really it's about how can we provide affordable space for performing artists to make work, to incubate, to show work in whatever form, whether it's a formal performance or just a showing, and teach classes and workshops, whatever is needed for an individual artist in this moment, in their trajectory. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, I was honored to be designated as Portland's second creative laureate. You were the second. I yes. thought you were the first. No. Oh. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about yeah, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my role in our community, both as an artist and an arts advocate, I'm super grateful that it's continued to grow. I've been sitting on the board of the Miller Foundation for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's nice to be in Peninsula Park because... I also just recently became a board member with the Parks Foundation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So it's lovely to connect and collaborate on all these different levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Creative Laureate position. So I, I thought you were the first, but you're yeah. the second. How have you <laughs> conceived of that role and what even is that? Absolutely. So as I understand it, Mayor Sam Adams designated this position. Hmm. You know, we all know Sam Adams in so many different ways, but when he was the mayor of our city and I was beginning to become more and more active in Portland toward the tail end of his mayor mayorship, mayorhood, yeah. <laughs> and um, quite an important advocate for arts and culture, right, in mm -hmm. our city. And he conceived of and designated this position of course as portland loves to be it is it was the first ever designation of creative laureate of any city in the country perhaps the world and because we are used to poet laureates right not sure. creative laureates right. and so julie keefe are you familiar with julie no keefe? i'm not she is an important artist a photographer but really it's not in that box of what we might think of as photography there's a lot of storytelling huge huge investment in young people's ability to speak about themselves hmm. through photography and then how do you take that into text and what does storytelling mean what does what is identity emotions so julie keefe and has been in portland for a very long time and has contributed not just in the arts world but in terms of community community building i know that julie's had a lot of relationships with the scanner news when it was mm. much oh, more right. elevated okay. years ago yeah i think i've read about that in particular yeah yeah and uh, and so julie was our first creative laureate 
and Julie held on to the position and and then after Sam Adams we had Mayor Charlie Hales mm-hmm. and Julie kept the position and I know that Julie was in it for about maybe five years because it was 2012 2017 and at that point we have Mayor Ted Wheeler in and Commissioner Nick Fish is the arts portfolio holder and um, Julie and Nick decided that it was time to look for a new creative laureate Mm. and uh, you know application process and interviews and and here we are I mean I'm really grateful it's it's really both a huge honor to be recognized in this way because I know that our city has so many important community leaders in the arts and culture world so Mm -hmm. to have this position is huge and also to be able to do advocacy work visibility work relationship building collaborative things you know stirring the pot all of it all of it and in terms of job description I will say that I'm again very lucky to have had and continue to have support to build the project as we go one of the hopes is when the next creative laureate goes out for application process again because it would be nice to keep having new voices right mm-hmm. more ways to represent our advocacy there's a desire to build somewhat of a mandate so that people know what they're entering into mm-hmm. and then keep the mandate as a core and build newness with the sure. new creative laureate so that they can also bring their artistry, their advocacy, their point of view, Mm -hmm. and their excitement Mm -hmm. to the position, so that it keeps becoming a thing where we're highlighting not just art forms, but also the ways that artists conceive of what civic engagement means. Well, it's a bit like, you know, you might think of like an, an opera role or a theater role or a dance role where, you know, the first person to have it kind of defines it in a certain way. And then it becomes the job of the next person that does it to bring their own voice to it. And, and mm-hmm. maybe and, then it, and there's that dance between kind of honoring the tradition that's there and also putting your own stamp on it. I mean, I think both things are really important. So I think that's been interesting. What would you say that you have approached it a little bit differently? You mean in relationship to how Julie approached it? Yeah. You know, there, there are lots of differences, but one thing that we always have to remember is when we think about civic engagement, we have to remember the players. So when Julie was designated, the resources and the tools that Julie can, could use were very different from mm-hmm. what I what I have right now. You know, the, the ecosystem, the arts ecosystem has changed so much. Sure. So Julie's role, I know Julie spent a lot of time doing community engagement work, working with youth, and that is that's something that she continues to do, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to reduce the stress at that time, but we we were in a space where arts and culture had venues and opportunities and a much larger donor and funding base so when I show up in 2018 I pretty much dove into what was important at that time which was venue closures affordability where are artists going to be able to make work and show work so I think each of us were able to 
get involved in that now mm. that we were in. And the now has, as you know, that question of affordability and right. survivor mode mm -hmm. that not just artists, but arts organizations have continued to have to maintain, unfortunately has only grown. It's right. not all bleak, right? I don't like to say that the picture is bleak. Absolutely not. We've got amazing stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize that there's a lot of shift where it requires us to feel more and more concerned. Mm -hmm. And then we've got COVID, right. and then we're working through and very important social justice movement. Right. So all of these markers have influenced how I approach mm -hmm. the work. So folks heard my interview with Jeff Hawthorne. We talked about this appropriation from the Oregon State Legislature of uh, about $50 million mm -hmm. that is coming from the federal government through the CARES Act, one of the COVID relief bills that was passed through Congress. So basically what's happened is that, and we talked about this before, so I'll just do a brief recap here, but mm -hmm. um, the state legislator kind of earmarked about $50 million of that whatever the total amount is, to yeah. go to performing arts venues and organizations that are struggling to stay afloat and, and pay bills and, and meet obligations that they have. So Jeff and I talked a lot about the, the broad structure of this and right, just how it was right, working, right. how it came to be, Great. You know, especially from that advocacy perspective, yeah. which he knows so much about. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about the equity piece of it. Sure. Now that the money is there... And now that it's being distributed, you did quite a lot of work trying to just spread the word about what these sure. things were and help people navigate what yeah. was a fairly complex uh, yes. application. So this is interesting because I've had conversations, especially about the CARES Act, with so many different community members. You know, the one thing that I keep coming back to is because our democracy is what it is, and the systems that have been created are what they are. And as we continue to work with those systems, we find out what these systems really are. So the best way I would say to understand why these CARES Act monies came so fast and were decided what feels like at the last moment and at perhaps the most inconvenient time for most arts leaders and artists because August is that time where we say oh my goodness can mm. we finally take four days off yeah, right. before September hits right yeah. so it, there's there's been a lot of discussion about timing and you know the equity of the timing and what if people don't even get the information until the application due date is gone right but I would say, you know, th this is where squares and what is that thing about trying to get us circle? A square peg and, in a round hole. Yes, yeah. there we go. <laughs> you know, having grown up in Singapore, I know these sayings, but I always get them all mixed up. It's kind of <laughs> funny. And it's kind of a running joke with some of my friends. So here is a CARES Act that's really geared towards small businesses and what the government knows of as small businesses, number one. And number two, it's really in the mode of disaster relief fund, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like what they would do for hurricane disasters. And so disaster right. stuff is often messy, mm -hmm. right? It's super, super short term. Yeah. And the regulations 
for most non-bureaucratic human beings makes no sense. Yeah, totally. So this framing is not to say anything about lack of equity, right? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just kind of approaching it in that manner of if we just looked at the system, it's it's so frazzled to yeah. start with. And okay. it's, it's like it begins from a place that's already challenging unless you have experience with it you know and have been through it but well and even if you do right Mm -hmm. every disaster relief every every moment calls for something different and and the in that in that spirit of responding to the current moment it could add more complications Mm -hmm. than not right so and then now we come to this particular bill so 50 million dollars 24 of those million dollars were just itemized as numbers, right, by legislators to seven of the largest arts organizations in our state. And the important thing to think about here is these venues, and when we say venues, it's a very confusing thing, you know, from an arts and culture perspective, what is a venue? Well, it's it's a place where performances happen is how I understand it was defined for that list right Mm. so it's performance venues so it's not venues that teach classes it's not venues Mm. where you have community gatherings it's not in terms of that flexibility Mm. it's where performances happen and the reasoning behind it of course is those were the first ones to close because of crowds right and those will probably be the ones that might open last you know with Mm -hmm. your sports events And then the rest of the money, the $26 million, is the competitive dollars. Mm, yeah. So therein was this confusion of why did some folks make the list, where you're just getting checks, how did they come up with the numbers for certain mm-hmm. organizations. I just want to say all of this is in the spirit of goodwill and goodness and innovation and this attempt at creating sustainability, right? Because no other state in the country has passed such a bill. Yeah. So we got, we got, got to take a moment and celebrate mm-hmm. and say, yeah. yay. Right. Right. Sure. We got to, we got to get excited about that. And there were some very keen lobbyists and keen advocates who really pushed the agenda forward. So that is important. And at the same time, we've got this question of, well, why did some venues and some venues as they're defined, and then some arts organizations, performance spaces get money in that first load, Mm -hmm. and why didn't others? And then why does everybody else have to go through a competitive process when these folks mysteriously got money? Right. Right? Mm So uh, you're starting to see that Those are the questions of inclusivity, accessibility, where is the equity in it, but where is even the information accessibility? Mm -hmm. So that all happens in July, right? And then early August, we've got Oregon Arts Commission, Oregon Culture Trust, and Business Oregon, under which Oregon Arts OCT and OAC function. So that's our state structure. And Oregon Culture Trust, OCT, is responsible for helping this competitive process for the rest of that $26 million. And that was the application 
that I partnered with, you know, OCT and the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition and the Regional Arts and Culture Council to really get the word out Mm. and some of our private foundations. And really, you know, from where I am, I'm not paid to do any of this work. So what I can do is reach out to partners and say, here's an opportunity for us to make this as accessible as possible, given these restrictions, right? Right. Restrictions of time, Mm -hmm. restrictions of language. And I don't just mean language, i.e. it's in English. The language of it. Right. Yeah, I see For some people, they're like, this is not English. Yeah, (laughs) right. I understand. And so all of these points where we need to capture or even organizations who feel, oh, well, I'm too small. No one's going to pay attention to me. And yet these are small organizations that impact not just that particular arts and culture community they serve, Mm -hmm. but they are part of the larger ecosystem of our community. Mm -hmm. So that was really the push in the last, what was it? I I can't even, feels like a lifetime ago. (laughs) Only at the beginning of August, right? Yeah, Yeah, where there was... uh, there was the understanding that the applications were going to come out. And, you know, again, I just have to say, I can't do any of this work if people didn't say, yes, let's partner. Yes, we'll work through the weekends. Yes, Mm -hmm. we have to. This is important, especially in these times where I keep hearing about individuals saying that they're making a change while others aren't. I, I speak about larger leadership in our spheres these days. I feel like it's always important to say, yes, one individual can sort of call out the need, but it takes so much work with so many people and so many organizations that we have to keep celebrating that collaborative partnership Hmm. and not just focus on the leader who apparently made everything happen. If you get my drift. I do, yes. Okay. It's a great problem to have that we have this problem of what do we do with this money? And Thank you for saying that because the we is a question. Mm. Who are the we mm-hmm. and who's at the table? And the thing is, what we, I believe, as, as I don't know who the we is at this point, but let's say we're, I think as a whole, our communities of leaders are very good at saying we'd like to bring in focus groups of the folks we know who are underrepresented. Please speak to us. We will listen to you. We will record what you say. We'll write this up and we'll build a statement. But what do you do with those listening sessions? Right? Mm-hmm. And and great. So I feel good that I've heard what you've had to say. Oh, what I've deemed underrepresented artist or arts organization. Right? That's that yeah. that's the <laughs> silence. Right. That exactly. that's important to think about. Yeah. And so in this case, that's the struggle, right? How do we even get people to the table to apply? Because the folks who are making decisions might actually not know the impact hmm. or that these communities are both underrepresented and are important. Yeah. I find that word really hard, underrepresented, but I use it because it, it somehow makes the synapses connect. Yeah. I wish we would have a better term because sure. it just it's just well term it, terms are hard. Language this is too is really hierarchical, yeah. you know. Well, yeah. yeah. And it's, but they also change so much over time and and like you know. Yeah. So it's it's that just could a be challenge. a whole different conversation, yeah, know, right? right? So so the folks at the table who are making decisions 
You've got folks at the table who are invited by the decision makers to say their piece. And then the, the, the power difference between those who are being heard and those who are hearing them. Because mm. the ones who are hearing them are making the decisions because they're the, the, the ones who are speaking in these focus groups are not invited to make decisions together, right? right. So, because we can't change our legislative constitution. Like, that just can't be done. Right. So those are just questions, right? These are, mm. these are things that we need to think about for how we move forward. What happens next? Because, great, we've got some relief funds, but that's like phase zero, right? Mm. What's... What's phase two, three, four, no, one, two, three, four. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do for the next three years? Yeah. Or as some people are saying, five or seven years, as we find the steps to come back up in a way, but also come back into another vibrant, rich yeah, world. Something that's hopefully better than right. what we right. had. Yeah. Portland is in the news right now, <laughs> right? You know, I wanted to start the conversation by saying, like, if you were talking to somebody who's not in the city with us, and they're hearing these things, and they maybe they're hearing what the president says, and then and then they're hearing what other people say to say that the president is completely wrong, or or that he's like taking a tiny bit of truth and blowing it way out of proportion. But I, you know, I just want to ask you your just your view of being here and with your perspective that's you know pretty unique about you know in your role as creative laureate and as a dancer as an artist what are you seeing here and and how would you describe portland in this moment to somebody who's not here i i think about a long sense of history right what portland is working through right now which is very important protests to call out what needs to change the things that happen because protests happen and how everybody paints the occurrences in the way that best suits them Mm -hmm. especially when it becomes political it's not the first time that I've had to witness or be part of something like this i i've been having many many memories back to i think 2000 or 2001 it was the year after the wto imf conferences which happened first in seattle and the protests there and then the next year it was in dc and i was working in dc in in an organization and we had sent folks to the seattle protests and then i was part of the dc protests and it's the same thing right you know there's one maybe not one square mile this is a little bit bigger maybe like five square miles that is involved in in action and in in all the things that people call rioting and protests and all all the loaded things that come with that imagery and then the rest of dc is just sort of living their lives as they are right yeah very much like we are in portland exactly exactly i mean i go back to that personal experience and then i look at other historical things across our timeline both in America and across the world that, you know, this is how people choose to do business in that political realm mm. or in sensationalistic press world. And and really, we've had a few friends call and, and we say, well, we are 
on the other side of the river. This is where this is going on. But it's not to say everything is fine in Portland except... I mean, that's the part that's very important for me is Mm. it's not to magnify the lack of unrest. For me, it's to say, yes, it's happening geographically in the spot and reminding people why it's happening. Because that's the problem that I'm seeing is the kind of constant attempt to forget why people continue to show up, what, eight weeks, nine weeks after George Floyd's killing, right? And that we have another one in Kenosha, Wisconsin Mm -hmm. last week. You know, so I, I was watching, I forget who or what I was watching, but somebody said, look, after Kenosha, this person was speaking four days later, and people say, okay, well, what do you want us to do? And his response was, because this was on news, and he says, no, we already told you what we wanted you to do. We've been telling you over years, right, hundreds of years, and we told you very clearly when George Floyd happened. So don't keep coming back to us asking for what you need, because you know what we need. Hmm. And and I think that is what I speak about when I think of, you know, yes, there are lots of people living th- their lives in the way that quarantine has made them live. And we have to amplify the importance of the work that's being done. Because I keep getting stressed out about how it devolves into this discussion of property damage and disruption and forgetting what the cause is. And, you know, because I live in Portland, I know that graffiti is something that is new, maybe? Street art is new? I mean, it shouldn't be. But having lived on the East Coast and seeing beautiful street art for all the time I've lived in America, even those things of, well, when is that going to change? No. We need to accept the philosophy and Mm. also the philosophy of what's happening and the humanity that we need to come to terms with our humanity i mean me as an individual the humanity of the folks who are saying hey you're not why are you not seeing us as humans hmm. you know that's really important and and this is you know i'm just going to close with this because this is something i've really been thinking about for the last few weeks we can see love and we can see beauty and we can see some of those manifestations outside of humans right nature animals. We can see relationships. We can see community behavior. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that we can see hatred outside of humans. Hmm. We made this up. We made hate up Hmm. out of fear, out of anger. I don't know, out of what. So I'm not, I am not convinced that it is reflected in anything outside of humans. So there are so many things that we've made up that we've said, hmm, doesn't work let's get rid of it sure so hatred why is hatred not obsolete at this point in our in our history kind of is what you're is what you're saying a bit well i'm saying why can't we get rid of it Mm -hmm. it's not reflected anywhere else Mm -hmm. i'm not convinced i mean maybe some of your listeners will say oh no there's hatred amongst (laughs) those marine you know algae down in i don't know so if it's Mm man-made which i believe it is and it perhaps is made out of fear, out of out of the need to keep power, the need to keep our our boundaries, 
to keep the system going, we got to do it. And, and I'm saying all of that because all of that to me is relevant when it comes to the discussion about Portland and the way things are being represented or misrepresented. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely an idea of, you know, people need to do what they need to do for themselves uh, to feed their families, to get along as human beings, you know. Living things compete for the same resources at times, and where we, but then we take that competition and we say, no, those other, that other group of people, whoever we choose to make into that other group you know that we we take that to the next level we take that that tendency for competition perhaps and turn that into something that we call hatred and it becomes like this political driver and well that's uh, one version but i will push back a little bit Uh you know the slaves weren't competing for anything that's true you know native american folks in in the indigenous folks in this country were not competing for anything it's really it's sometimes, it's not sometimes, most of the times I think when it comes to this level of conditioned hatred, mm. it's just this construct. It's a construct that I am better and you're not. And because I'm better, I'm more powerful. And I've drawn these lines, I've drawn these boundaries, I've drawn these um, lines on the sand, mm. and, and I will do everything I can to prevent you from crossing it or if you cross it there will be really dire consequences and and i mean i'm i'm speaking of that kind of hatred not i mean yes you go to the galapagos sure. islands yes you see that survival of the fittest you see the finches and sure. some make it some don't right that's you know that's super darwinian and that's mm-hmm. that's animal right right i don't i'm not convinced it's hatred Exactly. Well, I think I th- that's exactly okay. what i'm saying is yeah, that yeah. that's not hatred no right? no we've, that's that's life yeah what we've done is we've said because I, I, I would maybe say that, like, when I use the word competition, I'm saying, like, I think that the slaves did fight when they could. There were some times, but m- most of the time, in 99% of cases, they were, they did not have the opportunity to. And so that there, there are those examples. But, but, but I think that the point is that, I, that I'm struggling to make here is hatred has to do with power. Well, yeah, and hatred has to do with fear, but my, but let me just keep saying that the fighting back is historical events. My question is, why do certain people have to keep fighting back? I see, yeah. Right? That's important, and, and yeah. No, no, yeah. And, and, and I think that that's what I want to really kind of keep impressing upon us, is mm. why do certain communities always have to fight for their rights? And let's pay attention to the conditions that make it so because there's a whole community of folks who keep pushing their power. And I, you know, and that's where my curiosity is. And, and, I, and that's not, it's not all hatred, but it's this desire for comfort, it's this desire for structure, but all of it comes from a place of hum, human making. Mm-hmm. So can we, can we not deconstruct it? Can we not disrupt it? Because we actually have the power. Each one of us does. Yes. So why not? Right. You know, and I get, I, I guess I get a little heady about these things. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, it's. it's and it's a, important. I yeah. think it, it's, it, it goes along hand in hand with action and, yeah. and the raising of voices. It's a fairly anthropological way to see it. But I think that, but you're just trying to approach it, I think, um, 
taking that perspective as a beginning point, but to say like, but look, here, here is hate and here is hate and here is hate. And, and it looks like, I don't know, housing discrimination. It looks like police brutality. Like These redlining. Are, it yeah. looks like voter mm-hmm. suppression. It looks, it looks like less trees in neighborhoods that are made up of people of color and that means they live in hotter and less hygienic, I mean, less climate-friendly places. I mean, it looks like a lot of things that mm-hmm. are pretty insidious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we can change it. Yes. And why not? And I think that's what I keep coming back to as that's what's going on right now in Portland. And mm-hmm. don't just focus on all the things that are comfortable to focus on. Sure. Yeah, the things that... That you want to like yeah. or you want to hate. And don't just focus on all the, you know, the placards, right? Focus on the meaning and focus on why this has to happen now. Yeah. And I'm I'm not saying this out to everybody, right? I'm asking myself these questions. Mm-hmm. Like, it's important that I keep saying that, you know, I'm not, I'm not just telling everybody to do this. I do this every day. I mean, sure. we talk about anti-racist work. I feel strongly that it has to be a daily practice people have so many different kinds of daily practices and we need to hold this as a daily practice because there is no enlightenment you know there is no nirvana we're not going to walk away from the samsara of if you you can't call anti-racism samsara Hmm. and for those who don't you know samsara is this buddhist term of suffering and this idea of having to move out of suffering anti-racist work is work Hmm. that we got to keep doing like we don't become like it's not like you've taken a course and you've become anti-racist right it's a it's something you do it's it's the daily work yeah right you are what you repeatedly do (laughs) yeah it's not liberation it's not moksha you know it's not all those fancy lovely things that we want Mm. it's Hmm. it's got to be something we keep doing because every every moment's going to call for something else for us to do absolutely well, let's let's end it there. I think we're thank you. you're laughing and smiling right now, so that's probably a good place to stop. But Suba, thank you so much for talking with me about these issues. When people ask why do I do this podcast, it's like I just enjoy having these conversations mm. and mm. putting a microphone in somebody's face is a way mm-hmm. of focusing that energy in a way that that I learn a lot. It becomes really interesting is because you you see people thinking in real time as they're talking and trying mm-hmm. to make sense of what they're thinking and that's just hard. I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to do so i appreciate you going through that with me and of course thanks for being on the podcast thank you so much this has been great i really appreciate it thanks for thanks for having a conversation that's important yeah happy to do it thank you Thanks so much to you, Suba. Learn more about Subhashini Ganesan at moredevotedly.com or at the website of New Expressive Works, studio2zoomtopia.com. If you enjoy the conversations you're hearing on this podcast, please tell a friend about the show. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please join our mailing list at moredevotedly.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I'm Douglas Dietrich, and I produced this episode and composed and performed the music here in Portland, Oregon.
what you're doing is beautiful. Can you do it more devotedly?